Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio, the socially conscious travel radio show, where we ask the question... Are you leaving positive footprints today? We're Tanya Nee and Fitzpatrick, and we're continuing our broadcast from South Africa. On today's show, with much of the world focused on South Africa and soccer's World Cup being played there, we thought we'd take a look at some of the special social and scientific links between the U.S. and South Africa that are building friendships in both countries. The University of Missouri and the University of the Western Cape have one such friendship, Rodney Uphoff of the University of Missouri's South Africa Educational Program and the director of the School of Law's Study Abroad Program in Cape Town, South Africa, joins us today from there to talk about his program, Travels, and Life in South Africa. Then it's off to Atlanta to meet Nandy, a South African manta ray who now makes her home at the largest aquarium in the world, the Georgia Aquarium, where Tanya not only swam with Nandy, but went scuba diving with the whale sharks, the only place outside of Asia where you can view them and do that up close and personal. And Christy Cobb Hackey joins us from the Georgia Aquarium to talk about Nandy's journey from South Africa and what the aquarium is doing to leave positive footprints. Remember, if you have a question or a comment, write us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And, of course, we look forward to connecting with you during the week on our social networks, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and now Stitcher, the new mobile app that lets you listen to World Footprints on a mobile device. So join us on all of our social networks and sign up for the newsletter and learn how to access Twitter from our website, worldfootprints.com. For over 12 years, the University of Missouri has been a formal academic partner of the University of the Western Cape, a college that was established in 1959 for colored students located just outside of Cape Town, South Africa. The University of the Western Cape now serves students of all races with a comprehensive educational program including faculties of arts, community and health sciences, dentistry, economic and management sciences, education, law, and science, which really complements the University of Missouri's active study abroad program. Rodney Uphoff is the director of the University of Missouri South African Educational Program and the director of the School of Law Study Abroad Program in Cape Town. And he joins us today to talk about his program, his travels, and his life in South Africa. Rodney, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be on air. This this partnership between uh, Mizzou, the University of Missouri, and um, Western Cape began post-apartheid. Why did the University of Missouri choose Western Cape as an academic partner? Well, interestingly enough, this uh, this partnership actually dates back all the way to 1986, and at the time on the University of Missouri campus and on a number of college campuses around the United States, there were demonstrations and protests about um, having to do with the University of Missouri and other schools investing in South Africa. And at the time, as you may recall, um, there were um, economic and uh, other boycotts, sports boycotts, uh, trying to uh, bring pressure on the apartheid government. And 
what happened at the University of Missouri was as a result of these student protests, the uh, Board of Curators, which is the a body which uh, oversees the uh, University of Missouri, the Board of Curators not only ultimately decided to divest from South Africa, but they decided to actually invest in South Africa by creating a uh, South Africa program. And um, in 1986, they looked around at various uh, universities in South Africa and decided that the appropriate partner was the University of Western Cape because at the time it was a very under-resourced, uh, disadvantaged university that, as you said, uh, only um, served uh, colored students. And under apartheid, any person of mixed race was deemed colored and uh, they were discriminated against just like uh, black South Africans. And uh, so um, it's a relationship that dates back to 1986. And at the time, there were really no uh, American universities who were involved in South Africa or had any kind of uh, formal relationship. So the University of Missouri was the first. Um, and interestingly enough, even though the University of Missouri was very keen on partnering up with the University of Western Cape, there was uh, initial um, skepticism and reluctance uh, on the part of the University of Western Cape. And as the rector, Brian O'Connell, um, eloquently talks about, um, the people at the, the faculty at the University of Western Cape really weren't sure what was up with these Missouri people and why they were coming here. And in fact, some of the faculty suspected that this was uh, a plot um, being engineered by the apartheid government to uh, um, to actually uh, get around the boycott. Interestingly enough, in 1994, when uh, President Mandela took power and was the first uh, uh, democratically elected president of the new South Africa, uh, almost one-third of his initial, initial cabinet were faculty members from the University of the Western Cape, and his chief of staff was the then rector of the University of Western Cape, Jakes Herwall. Um, and by rector, that is really uh, equivalent to uh, the chancellor of the University of Missouri or um, kind of the head person at uh, an American university. And, and Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, at, uh, sits on uh, the chancellor. He's the chancellor of, of uh, Western Cape, as I understand it. Yes, he, he's uh, he's been the chancellor for many years, and the chancellor position is a largely ceremonial position. So um, uh, the archbishop uh, does come to graduation, and he speaks at uh, at uh, certain functions at the university. Um, and he's very proud of his affiliation with the University of Western Cape. But uh, the person who's actively involved in uh, the leadership of the University of Western Cape. Um, and for the last 10 years has been a man by the name of Brian O'Connell, who is uh, truly one of the um, education educational visionaries uh, in South Africa. Now, Rodney, as uh, Tanya described the university uh, in, in the intro, it was... Uh 
founded in 1959, and it's uh, a pretty comprehensive university. Was that always the case? At the very beginning, I would say that the University of Western Cape, it was certainly not a research-oriented university at all. Uh, it was a uh, essentially a university designed to provide kind of uh, basic uh, education uh, to um, colored students, uh, primarily in the Western Cape, um, which has the largest colored population in South Africa. And uh, it was not ever uh, envisioned to be uh, a university of any uh, of any real substance uh, under the apartheid government. Um, they certainly weren't particularly interested in seeing um, colored citizens achieve greatness. That was not the not the goal or thrust of the apartheid government. But they wanted to provide kind of basic education so that the uh, so that some colored citizens were able to attain a college degree and then they could become teachers. Um, uh, but over the last 50 years, and the University of Western Cape is celebrating their 50th anniversary this year, um, the university has gone from this essentially backwater university to uh, its status now as the um, seventh-ranked university in all of Africa. And in South Africa, it has the fifth uh, highest number of rated researchers and only uh, only scholars who have achieved a certain level of expertise and recognition become a rated researcher and uh, the University of Western Cape has uh, the fifth highest number in, in all of South Africa. So it's a first-rate university. They have first-rate scholars from all over the world teaching here. Um, they have relationships with all of the top universities in Europe, um, many in the United States um, and in Asia. Um, they are well regarded throughout uh, Africa. In fact, uh, many of the top students in uh, the University of Western Cape uh, come from uh, some of the best uh, uh, high schools uh, throughout Africa, so they really are attracting some of the best and brightest uh, students uh, from all over Africa. And it's not surprising because uh, Cape Town is um, a fantastic place to be, and South Africa is the um, you know most uh, powerful uh, with the most powerful country in Africa with the um, highest standard of living and the uh, best infrastructure. So South Africa is um, really the the leader on the African continent, so it's no surprise that their university system is is the most advanced and most well regarded. And uh, as as part of part of that mission, uh, clearly you are involved in the law program uh, at, at at Missouri and and there as well. Talk to us about uh, about the state of the law school and legal education in South Africa. For much of the history of this partnership, and we are celebrating our uh, 24th year uh, this year, um, the law school, uh, the two law faculties didn't really do uh, a lot. Uh, there was just a few exchanges oh, until um, 2002. I came over here for the first time, met some of the faculty here, I gave a series of lectures, and I was um, just blown away not only with the University of Western Cape, uh, but the uh, 
city of Cape Town and the surrounding areas. And uh, I went back to um, uh, to the University of Missouri and spoke to uh, Dean Desham and said, uh, Cape Town is just an incredible place. We ought to launch a study abroad program at Cape Town, and we uh, ought to do it with the University of Western Cape, given the long relationship uh, between our two schools. It's the perfect place to do um, to do a study abroad program. And at the time, the University of Missouri did not have a study abroad program. It was involved in a consortium program, semester abroad program in London, but we didn't have any of our own programs. I had run a uh, study abroad program um, when I had taught at the University of Oklahoma in uh, Oxford, England, so I had some experience uh, with running study abroad programs, and um, I'd actually gone to school in London and had traveled uh, uh, not only a lot in Great Britain, but I had traveled extensively in Western Europe and Eastern Europe and Russia. Um, I've traveled in Japan, Australia, New Zealand. I'm, I travel all over, and for me, Cape Town was um, the most uh, exciting place um, that I had ever been. So um, I was able to convince our dean that we ought to go back the next summer. That was the summer of 2003. And uh, Dean Desim, uh our former dean, Tim Hines, who at the time was directing um, the Dispute Resolution Center at the University of Missouri Law School, and I, the three of us came over and we staggered uh, our visits. So combined, we were here for six weeks and we taught a uh, dispute resolution course um, to the students, to a group of students at the University of Western Cape. They were very excited in the course, and um, we then had meetings with uh, Dean Najma Musa, who at the time was the dean at the uh, UWC Law Faculty, and we decided to jointly launch a study abroad program commencing in 2004, and I brought the first group of uh, 20 American students uh, over in the summer of 2004 for our first uh, joint study abroad program, and I, that really started the uh, uh, really much uh, more intense uh, law faculty to law faculty relationship. When we return, we'll learn more from Rodney Uphoff, who joins us from South Africa as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, I'm Nancy from Lansing, Michigan. I'm here in New Orleans. And I enjoy listening to the World Footprints Radio. Tom Gilmore lives on a farm. There's a storm on the way, so he's boarding up the windows of his house. Haley Williams lives in an apartment. It's a beautiful day. She's making her usual monthly donation to the American Red Cross. Tom doesn't know a tornado will leave his family with no place to go. Haley doesn't know her gift will help give Tom's family shelter. When you support the Red Cross, you change a life. Starting with your own. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org to learn about life-changing opportunities in your area.
making sure the air in your dream home is healthy for your family to breathe. Building a radon-resistant home is easy. Just ask your builder or go to epa.gov slash radon. A message from the U.S. EPA. Hello, my name is Minnie Johnson. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I really enjoy listening to the World Footprints radio show whenever I have an opportunity to do so. I've gained so much information from the show. This is World Footprints Radio, celebrating responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Here are your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. And welcome back. Here's more with Rodney Uphoff of the University of Missouri as he shares his South Africa story. You attract a, a wonderful caliber of, uh, of faculty from, from the states. And, you know, uh, as I mentioned, Ian and I are happy to volunteer for a tour of duty uh, teaching, <laughs> <laughs> teaching at, at, at Western Cape. And perhaps some deference can, and, uh, can be given to a fellow LSC alum, you think? <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll certainly look into that. Yes, uh, um, I did. Uh, I, I think that's one of the places where I got the travel bug. I uh, um, had a Rotary uh, International Rotary uh, Fellowship, and I went and studied at LSE between my um, undergraduate days at the University of Wisconsin and then going back to Wisconsin and getting my law degree. And so mm-hmm. I spent a year at LSE and. Um, as you well know, that's a fantastic uh, school, and living in London for a year is um, uh, is a terrific experience. Absolutely. And, uh, and I use that to uh, to to uh, jumpstart uh, much of my uh, exploring in in Europe because I spent uh, three months uh, before going to school, and then uh, right before coming home, um, I went with. Uh, Ten of my uh, fellow students from LSE, and we went on a two-week um, bus trip through the Soviet Union. Which, mm-hmm. back in 1973, there weren't a lot of Americans in uh, uh, in the Soviet Union, and that's what it was called in those days. <laughs> and we just we just happened to be in the Soviet Union at the time that Brezhnev was in uh, Washington meeting with Nixon, and there was a thaw in the uh, uh, relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States, and we took advantage of that thaw to mm-hmm. have a uh, remarkable experience in uh, in Russia back in 1973. So, oh, well, yeah, I'm I'm just planting the seed, you know, for future teaching opportunities in in South Africa. Sure, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the student uh, experience. Uh, students who participate in this exchange program, you know, we always talk about travel being transformative, and of course, you. You said it was for you, and, and it started with, with uh, you know, your studying uh, time in London. Talk to us about some of the, the students who participate in the South African um, law school program. We have generally uh, 22 students, uh, American students, come over with me. Uh, we could have more students, but I try to limit it to 22 because we want to have the classes uh, be uh, relatively small, so there's plenty of opportunity for dialogue between the UWC students and the American students. Generally, about two-thirds, two-thirds of the students, the American students, are from the University of Missouri, uh, but we have a one-third of the students uh, come from um, all sorts of different law schools from around the United States, and. Uh, I would say that it's kind of evenly divided between uh, some of the students um, either did a study abroad program or traveled 
um, either internationally or at least uh, at least they've been traveling around the United States. Um, and the other half, um, we always get some students who have never even been out of the state of Missouri on a trip to to South Africa is their first uh, travel abroad experience. Wow. Uh, and I must say um, that. Um, Probably uh, 98%, I'd say 100%, but I'm sure there's one or two students um, who it wasn't the most uh, uh, memorable experience of their life, but virtually every student, we have them fill out an evaluation form when they get home, and virtually every one of the students says, they use words like, um, transforming, uh, or this has changed my life, or this has given me a perspective that I've never, uh, never thought I would have. So um, I've seen uh, people from small town Missouri come over here and um, just be uh, amazed um, at what they've experienced in Cape Town, um, and that's that to me is is one of the things that. Uh, keeps me doing this program um, now for the seventh year. Um, I love coming over here, um, but I particularly enjoy uh, watching the effect that this kind of travel has uh, on my students. And they all come back uh, much more informed, open-minded people uh, about uh, the world and the way it operates and how the there are many more similarities between um, people in the United States and people in uh, South Africa than many of them think when they first come over here. And uh, that's one of the things, not only do they, they all they learn things in the classroom. I, I teach a comparative uh, criminal justice class, and in that class, uh, we talk about similarities and differences in our criminal justice systems. Um, but what the students learn in the classroom pales in comparison to what they learn outside the classroom. Also talk to us about the opportunities for South African students to come to the U.S. through this relationship. One of the first things um, when, I, when we were over here talking with Dean Musa and uh, faculty members at UWC, one of the things that Dean Musa um, really stressed was that she recognized that it was so expensive for UWC students to travel abroad that uh, other than getting a fellowship or a scholarship, um, none of them could afford on their own, or very, very, very few of them could ever uh, afford to travel to the United States. Um, and so part of what we wanted to do with the study abroad program by getting the UWC students in contact with American students was that at the very least, uh, we might be able to change some of the perceptions uh, about Americans um, and misconceptions that uh, UWC students have about Americans by having them interact both in the classroom and outside of the classroom. So um, it was a way that uh, it's part of the way that uh, UWC can internationalize uh, their campus by having their students exposed, um, even though it's on their campus, but they're exposed to international students with a different perspective uh, than than the UWC students have, so that was that was one of our goals, and we surely have accomplished that. Um, but the second goal was to try to find out if try to search for ways that we might be able to bring 
some UWC students to uh, the United States, to the University of Missouri. And fortunately, we've had um, two uh, people, um, uh, Jeffrey Osner and uh, uh, Fred White, um, both have donated money to the University of Missouri Law School mm-hmm. um, to enable us uh, to um, uh, to bring. Um, we've had now six people. Uh, let's see if my math is correct. We've had six people graduate with LLM degrees from the University of Missouri um, in our dispute resolution program. We will have three more coming over this August. Uh, so this has been um, a, a, a real um, wonderful experience, wonderful opportunity for the UWC students, and but for the generosity of these two men, and actually there's a third uh, man, John Landy, who's a professor at UWC. His father has also donated some money to this um, to this fund that we use to uh, to bring uh, UWC uh, students over uh, to Missouri to um, to take our one year LLM program. So it's a one year program. Um, I'm actually uh, hosting. Uh, Fred White is a is a really interesting guy, Missouri graduate who uh, went out to uh, San Francisco and was a tax lawyer for a large. Um, uh, law firm and ended up spending considerable time in um, in Europe um, working in Geneva and uh, ended up becoming a big believer in um, the importance of of international travel and broadening people's perspectives and he decided that one way he could give back was to he just happened to read in our uh, Missouri the law school has a newsletter that sends out to its alumni he read about this program and he wondered uh, and he, he tells a funny story about it. He said, what the hell is the University of Missouri doing in South Africa, and how did this law school program get going? So he actually uh, called me up, and we started to talk, and he ended up uh, donating $150,000 to the University of Missouri to fund this program. Or to, he's the primary donator, uh, uh, donor, but the other two men have also mm-hmm. given generously to this fund. So... That has enabled us to do what I never thought we'd be able to do. I have a, a quick question then. The, the program in, uh, in, at UWC, the Western Cape, is that uh, a JD mm-hmm. program or JD and LLM? I mean, what, what types of students are at what well, uh, educational level are the students who travel there? Well, the, the, um, the South African system is much, look, much like the European system. People go directly from uh, high school. Okay. They go directly to college, and they will, they will study law as their first degree. So uh, law school is not an advanced degree. It's, uh, it's a first degree. Uh-huh. So um, it's generally uh, four years, um, and then they then have to do their articles um, with a law firm. It's much like an internship program or apprentice program. Mm-hmm. Or some of them go study abroad or um, and try to get, uh, you know, these students. These students are getting an LLM, which is an advanced degree um, from the University of Missouri. So that's after they have 
uh, gotten their uh, law degree here in South Africa. And conversely, the, the uh, University of Missouri students, um, the program that they participate in South Africa at, at Western Cape, is it a JD or an LLM program it, or both? It, no, it's part of their J, it's part of their JD studies. Okay. So they earn six they earn six credits while they're here, and they are taking classes with UWC students who are generally in their last year. Mm-hmm. So they're they're pretty comp- pretty comparable, and the courses that they take, the, the what I call comparative criminal justice, which is a two credit class that counts towards the ninety credits they need to graduate from law school, um, has a different name. Um, it's called advanced criminal procedure in the UWC curriculum, and they get a different number of credits. But it counts the it, for the UWC students, it counts towards their um, law degree. And for the American students, it counts towards their JD degree. Golly, I only earned four credits when I studied uh, did the study abroad program in China. <laughs> so, well, I I, uh, I purposely set this up so that students could get six credits because it's expensive to travel over to South Africa, and um, we we tried to set it up so that the students would uh, would uh, you know earn enough credits to make it financially worth them to come to come over and um, I don't have a whole lot of problems marketing this program at the University of Missouri the students every year come back and they're excellent sales men and women so um, I, I, I usually have to turn people away when we return we'll get some South African travel tips from Rodney as World Footprints Radio continues hi I'm Johannes from Pretoria Gauteng in South Africa I love listening to and I want you to support Iron Antonia at World Footprint Radio. It is exciting. making sure the air in your home is healthy for your family to breathe. Testing for radon is easy. Just call 866-730-GREEN. A message from the US EPA. Joel Klein catches a 7 o'clock train after his evening CPR class at the American Red Cross. Ron Garrett is on the same train. He's had a rough day and doesn't feel like himself. Until he feels the sudden tightness in his chest, Ron never thought he'd actually have a heart attack. Until Joel is administering CPR, he never thought he'd actually save a life. When you train with the Red Cross, you change a life. Starting with your own. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org to learn about life-changing opportunities in your area. Hi, my name is Eva. I'm from Fiji, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. This is World Footprints Radio, celebrating responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Here are your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. And welcome back. Here's more with Rodney Uphoff of the University of Missouri as he shares his insights on South Africa. Rodney, I'd like to shift the focus away from law and talk about some of your travels through South African and other African nations. And we understand that your love for South Africa is so deep that you've purchased a home in one of the wine regions of South Africa. Uh, that's true. Um, I now decided that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've decided that coming over here. Um, I mean, one cannot be 
one cannot help but uh, uh, just look around and be find the uh, scenery to be staggering. Um, mm-hmm. This this friend uh, Fred White, who's here, um, he actually has a uh, he grows grapes in Sonoma. Um, he's that's where he's retired. Uh, spends some time in France and sometimes. Uh, some of the year in Sonoma, and as he drove around, uh, as we drove him around in, in the Stellenbosch region, uh, he, he said, you know, I, California is fantastic, but the scenery here um, is even more fantastic and more um, beautiful. I mean, it's just, on a day like today, it's, uh, um, this is late late autumn, um, early winter here in um South Africa, and it was 70 degrees today, and um, beautiful blue sky, and um, the mountains are just, first of all, Table Mountain is is stunning, but as you drive towards the University of Western Cape, the Stellenbosch uh, range uh, just uh, rises up over the horizon, and as I drove in this morning at 7 a.m., uh, there was a red sky behind the mountain, and it was just breathtaking. Um, and within uh, within about an hour of South Africa, or within about an hour of Cape Town, there are probably 300 wine farms. Um, so anyone who loves wine, as I do, um, finds uh, so much good wine, and it is affordable. Um, the the uh, the wineries are some of them are just uh, incredible, um, incredibly beautiful, um, and the tastings are <laughs> the tastings are, are quite generous. Um, and uh, so, if you like wine, um, this is an incredible place. If you like any kind of outdoor sports, um, there's a lot of hiking and bicycling uh, in this area. Um, there's surfing. Um, the beaches are stunning here. There's shark diving, uh, whale watching. Um, within two hours of Cape Town um, is Seal Island, where mm-hmm. uh, the Discovery Channel films all of their, um, you know, if National Geographic or any of those television shows are going to mm-hmm. film anything about the Great Whites, that's where they um, that's where they film them. So I've gone shark diving a couple times with my students. Um, the whales come in um, generally in uh, later uh, July. They start coming in, and I, you can stand on shore. I've seen them 50 yards away and watched from the shore um, the whales um, down at Hermanos. So um, there's there's that. There's incredible golf if you like to golf, which I do, um, and. Um, in terms of uh, with with good wine comes good food, and yeah. there's incredibly <laughs> incredibly good uh, food here because it attracts uh, people from all over Asia, other parts of Africa, and Europe. So the restaurants are the restaurant scene is amazing. You can eat more cheaply at nicer restaurants here than you can in Columbia, Missouri. I know, I know, which. You know, it, you're you're taking us back. You're taking us back to a wonderful yeah, time exactly. in our lives. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I was just going to say that uh, part of the last two years, uh, when South Africa knew that it was getting the World Cup, and even slightly before then, but it's been accelerated as a result of the build-up for the World Cup. There are a lot of good restaurants that are opening up. So. 
um, the restaurant scene is really uh, probably even more amazing than when you were here. Mm-hmm. Um, you get new restaurants opening all the time. Oh. And, of course, that competition breeds uh, winter specials. So right now they're doing all sorts of um, two-for-one meals and all the shrimp you can eat for 99 Rand, which is um, you know not even $15. And so there's... Um, uh, it's 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 good to eat here, and the dollar is still strong. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's good value. You can stay in you can stay in very nice uh, hotels, um, uh, particularly if you come here. There's really two times to well, there's lots of times to travel here, but um, the weather is probably best, um, and the main tourist season is December, January, and February because that's that's really winter. That's really summer here in Cape Town, but that's when all the Europeans um, escape Europe, and many of them love to come down to Cape Town. Um, so prices uh, for hotels and restaurants. That's peak season, mm-hmm. um, but this time, um, June, July, and August are the winter months, uh, but that's when the Europeans don't come here, so it's the cheapest time. You can find rooms for about oh, a third of what it costs uh, during peak season, okay. and the restaurants are empty. Um, so this is a great time to come. Except during uh, world events like the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, except during World Cup, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Everything's turned upside down in the World Cup. I might also say that in terms of in, in terms of going to Kruger, the best time of the year to go to Kruger is during the winter months. Mm-hmm. So June, July, and August are the peak times to travel um, up to Kruger and, and see the game. And that's extraordinary. Um, I've... Uh, I've been fortunate enough to um, go to the Maasai Mara, Ma, excuse me, the Maasai Mara and the Serengeti in Kenya and Tanzania. I've been to the Ngorogoro Crater. Uh, I've been on safari in Botswana, and I've gone to Etosha in Namibia. So I've done a lot of the the uh, leading uh, game parks in the uh, in the African continent. Kruger is the most affordable and the most accessible. Um, so that's one reason why uh, I keep going back to Kruger. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you if you have a lot of money, uh, then you can fly into the Maasai Mara or fly into the Serengeti, and the herds are are, are even bigger there. Um, everything's on a larger scale in the Serengeti and the Maasai Mara. Um, you know, I, I got to see a little bit of the uh, wild or the um, uh, the migration mm-hmm. and that's the wildebeest migration and that's you know, that's incredible. But Kruger is accessible and affordable. Absolutely, and and and, and beautiful. And and um, Rod, just in our um, final moments here, I want to uh, shift gears again and uh, talk to you about okay. the the primary uh, school, the children of primary schools, and their um, and their experiences. Now, I I know that um, you have or you've help create a foundation or you're supporting a foundation that's adopted um, a primary school that Ian and I have actually uh, also adopted, the Calcus- Calstein-Fontaine Primary School. Um, 
Okay. You almost got that right. That's a, it's a Kalkstein Fontaine Kalkstein. Primary School, and that's a real that's a real mouthful, right? Yes, it is. Yes, um, it is. And I didn't have it yeah. written down in front of me. So, <laughs> but but uh, well, you, you did you did a good job on it anyway. Thank um, you. The contrast between the the rich and the poor is pretty stark, and you see it right when you get off the plane and you go past. Um, some of the shanty um, homes, and then you get into the city and you see a different side of Cape Town. So it's really important for my students um, to see um, the whole range of life here in, in Cape Town. So we um, we take them to Kailicha, which is the largest township outside of Cape Town where no one even knows for sure. At least a million people live in an area which is um, much, much, much smaller than um, Columbia, Missouri. It's just, it's just. I can't even tell you how small the area is. And for there to be a million people um, means that people are virtually on top of each other in their in their living space. So when people talk about crime, um, and the crime is occurring, um, most of it's occurring in the townships, mm-hmm. and they're incredibly dangerous places, particularly at night. Um, we, uh, we go to the townships, we go to the court in the townships and watch court proceedings. Um, we uh, also go to Kolkstein Fontaine to this primary school, and it was going to the primary school where a number of the students um, came up to me afterwards and said, Professor Upoff, what can we do to help out? So um, Jim Levin and I, uh, who's another professor at the University of Missouri, um, decided to uh, launch a nonprofit to to raise some funds to help this particular primary school because the principal of the school, a guy by the name of Jeffrey Arnson, is uh, is a really dynamic, uh, energetic guy who does what he can do um, to improve the lives of the of the kids in in that particular uh, township community. And so, we uh, also um, had a, a student um, from the University of Missouri who also wanted to join in on this effort. And we we ultimately linked up with Julie Roof. Uh, uh, Julie um, at uh, Rutgers University who've right. been going over to this same uh, primary school for a while and Rich Oliver who's the Dean of the School of Health Professions at the University of Missouri uh, who had also been interacting with Jeffrey and with this school for a number of years so the five of us are the board of directors on this uh, it's called the Good Hope Educational Initiative and we launched it uh, last year and we've um, been trying to raise um, additional funds. Um, some of the students who are coming over this year, uh, we had one incredibly enterprising student who went around and solicited soccer equipment and soccer jerseys, and he and the, he shipped over uh, a number of the soccer balls, and the students, the 22 students who are coming over this year are carrying over in their suitcases um, uniforms and other equipment that we'll uh, be giving out to the to the students. So um, it's it's an effort um, not only to help out but also to um, make sure 
that the students leave with a uh, an appreciation for the real struggles and challenges that confront South Africa, um, but also it, it it enables them to to gain a better appreciation for how lucky they are um, in terms of their own economic situation. Indeed, and and, and what is the website where people can because you know volunteers and donors are the backbone of nonprofits, and and so I. Sure. I imagine you know our listeners would like to to contribute in some way. If you ju- if you just Google the Good Hope Educational Initiative, um, and you're, you'll you'll be able to bring it up. I, I should have the website address, and embarrassingly enough, uh, I don't have it because I just always Google Good Ho- Good Hope Educational Initiative. But I can be sure to send you the exact website, and uh, hopefully you can get it out to your listeners because that would be. Uh, that would be a great, uh, a great uh, um, help to us and to the kids at uh, Kids in Colkstein Fontaine. Well, Rodney Uphoff is the director of the University of Missouri South African Educational Program and the director of the School of Law Study Abroad Program at the University of the Western Cape in Cape Town, South Africa. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. When we return, we'll introduce you to Nandi, the South African manta ray, as we visit the Georgia Aquarium with Christy Cobb Hackey as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, my name is Timothy Kendrick. I'm Grace Kendrick. And we love World Footprints Radio. And I'm a transplant from Michigan here in Vancouver and loving it. We love the radio. Thank you. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I live in the South. California is my home. I speak fluent Spanish. No hablo espanol. I have brown eyes. My eyes are blue. We're very different people, but we do have something in common. I made a donation to the Red Cross. When disaster struck and I needed help, her gift to the American Red Cross changed my life. When you support the American Red Cross, you change a life, starting with your own. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org and find out about life-changing opportunities in your area. Check out this fan leaving the game. He's headed straight up the middle and right into a sobriety checkpoint. Let's see how he handles it. No, officer. I haven't been drinking. I'm the designated driver. Upon further review, this fan made the right call by being a designated driver. Sign up to be the designated driver at the stadium and always buckle up. You could follow your favorite NFL team to the Super Bowl, provided as a public service by the station at Team Coalition. Hey, this is Jay down in New Orleans, and you're listening to the good folks at World Footprints. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. We recently had the pleasure of visiting the largest aquarium in the world, the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta, where I actually went scuba diving with the whale sharks. And it's the only place outside of Asia where you can view these species up close and personal as I did. The aquarium is a world-class entertainment attraction, but its major goal is to be the leading facility for aquatic animal conservation and research. And Christy Cobb-Hackey joins us from the Georgia Aquarium to talk about what they're doing to leave positive footprints. Christy, welcome. Thank you so much. First of all, oh my gosh, I still beam after my, my dive with the whale sharks. And I was incredibly impressed with our pre-dive briefing. Our dive master drilled in the point that the uh, the dive itself was a no-touch dive. In other words, no one's to touch any of the uh, any of the, the 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 species, any of the animals. 
And and so what has been very clear through our touring of the aquarium and certainly prior, my, you know, during my pre-dive briefing is uh, that the aquarium is strongly committed to the conservation and preservation of the animals. Talk about this commitment and what, what you guys are doing. You know, we take our role as animal caregiver incredibly seriously. So we want to be able to inspire people through a connection to our animals. At the same time, you know, we want to be able to have them be happy in the habitat they live in. So the no-touching policy is a big deal for us in our Ocean Voyager exhibit where you are able to dive. But we also work very hard to conduct research on key animals throughout every single exhibit gallery at the aquarium. So we take our whale sharks and we research them here in the facility. We spend a lot of time doing ethograms, learning where they swim and how they eat and how long it takes them to process their food. But we also do field research where we learn what they eat in the wild, how large they grow. We survey different populations of whale sharks. And that's so that we can in turn take better care of the animals that we have here. Now, can you talk a little bit about the whale shark's natural habitat and and why you're studying, specifically studying, um, this species, are they endangered or, or close to being endangered? You know, whale sharks are really interesting. They are the largest fish in the ocean. And until recent years, very little attention has been paid to them. But as the largest fish, there's a lot to be learned. You know, any any of the animal species, if you pick something at the top or at the bottom of the chain, you can learn a lot about the entire habitat. Whale sharks are found around the globe. And, in fact, our whale sharks here at the Georgia Aquarium came from Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And so we are working with the Taiwanese. And then we are also working in Mexico where the largest aggregation ever known by science has been found near the Yucatan Peninsula. And so we really want to understand more about these animals and their habitat. We know that they swim long distances, but things that we don't know are where do they give where do they where do they pup? And we want to learn more about, you know, what happens during their diet cycles. We know that they come into the Yucatan in the summer to eat and they eat large quantities of fish eggs, but then we don't know exactly where they go from there. So one of the pieces of our population study is to add to give a few animals each summer satellite tags so that we can track them from this particular area and kind of see where they go. Hmm. Now, one of the things about the Georgia Aquarium is that you've got 2,000 plus volunteers who really help in your educational mission. Talk to us about the educational mission and some of the opportunities uh, that visitors and those who may want to participate in some of your programs uh, to go on eco-mission trips uh, that you lead. Uh, I understand some of these are led right in the Yucatan Peninsula area of Mexico. We have run a trip for the last two summers and are going to do it again in August of this year. And we take a group of eco-tourists to a very remote island called Holbosch, and it's right at the corner of the Yucatan Peninsula. It's a place where, you know, really only other Mexicans go to vacation. It's pretty undisturbed. The only real transportation on the island is either walking or by golf cart. But this island is a really wonderful natural habitat where you can swim and snorkel right off the coast. But the key thing is that the whale sharks come in in huge numbers. And so you can go out on an eco-tour boat, and this is the time of year when our scientists are working. Mm -hmm. So we'll go out on a tour boat, you know, several miles off the coast, we we allow each of our guests to get in the water and swim right alongside a whale shark. And I have to tell you, swimming next to a 25-foot animal is unbelievable. In their natural habitat, you know, they cruise along and eat eat all of the plankton-rich water. And 
it's a remarkable experience. What we bring to the table that nobody else has is the opportunity for our guests on this eco-tour to see our scientists conducting their field work mm-hmm. so they can see them doing the plankton draws. Mm-hmm. We also engage our scientists with the group that goes to Holbosch, and they have a, a dinner where they can ask any question they want, and they can look at all of the scientific equipment that we use. They can review aerial photos of animals that are part of the aggregation. And so it allows us to, to take a very special group of people and, and get them right up close with one of the important research projects that the Georgia Aquarium is doing. Excellent. Now, I know part of your educational component and, and or educational purpose is to raise awareness about conservation um, with the visitors to the aquarium. And I think in, in some ways you have a program that, that uh, I love because you're growing. I call growing little ambassadors. That's my term for, for some of the students. You have a, a program called uh, Sponsor Admissions, and it allows underprivileged, disadvantaged children to experience the aquarium as a part of you know their their growth as little ambassadors. Can you talk about that program and also... Um, the uh, the four four R program you have. Absolutely. Our C program, Sponsored Education Admissions, is something that we do where we do allow underprivileged students to come into the aquarium. And we do it during the year through our, for our formal education programs. And then we also have, during the summer, opportunities to host camp kids and uh, children from other local resource centers to come to the aquarium and enjoy it. The aquarium was a gift to the city of Atlanta and the state of Georgia from Bernie Marcus. So one of the things that we do is every single education admission we offer is sponsored. It's about half the price of a normal child ticket, and that's something that we do as a commitment to our community. Mm-hmm. Um, we've hosted about 320,000 students through our education programs, and so it's it's really done well in the last four years that we've been running those those opportunities. But in addition to traditional education, which is what I would call K through 12, we also have um, a program where we educate all of our daily visitors. And so our 4R program is research, responsibility, um, relocation, rehabilitation. And so it hmm. covers everything we do for animal care. Part of those efforts also include educating your your visitors to be more responsible consumers of uh, seafood. And you've got the Seafood Savvy Program. Talk to us about that. Well, we have a couple of different components as part of the Seafood Savvy Program. We are partners with the Monterey Bay Aquarium and their Seafood Watch efforts. And so our Seafood Savvy Program provides consumers a little bit more information so they can make better, more educated decisions about the fish that they're buying from their local grocer or when they're out at restaurants. And what we want to do is just educate consumers about why certain fisheries are in decline, why certain fish shouldn't be eaten due to mercury or due to the way that they're farmed. And so our daily guests get to learn about our Seafood Savvy program through our interpreters that work on the floor. Kind of the easiest take-home is a Seafood Savvy wallet card. And so it's kind of a go-to resource that you can keep in your pocket. And if you are interested, it gives you, you know, choices to avoid and then choices that are best um, to, to answer all of those seafood questions. We also have a pretty robust section of our website dedicated to educating consumers about why to make the decisions they should make. And some of the animals that we have in our exhibits are really great references for this. So our docents, when they're talking about seafood savvy, can talk about a grouper and they can say, this fish right here, although it may show up very often on Florida menus, 
it has to be 16 or 20 years old until it can reproduce. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that for fishery is, is one to really avoid because they have been overfished in the past. I'm actually going to post uh, the seafood savvy uh, guide uh, from that you produce, that Georgian Aquarium produced on our website. One of the stories that I love about the aquarium, and I'm going to ask you to share it with our audience, is uh, about a, a lovely creature that I met when I was diving uh, with the whale sharks, and uh, it was probably one of the most unique experiences I, I had. Uh, we were laying on the bottom of the tank um, because one of your uh, residents, Nandi, who is a manta ray, was in a playful mood and uh, laying flat. She came right up to me, opened her mouth about a foot and a half wide right as she approached me, and I thought, huh, this is interesting. <laughs> and I, I laid still, and she, you know, she just kind of swam right over me and, and was, was gone and turned around for another, uh, another go around. But um, tell, tell us her story, because she, she, her story is very fascinating to us. You know, Nandi is one of the animals that we're proud to have as part of our 4R program. She came to us from the Ushaka Marine Aquarium, and that's in South Africa. And along the coast of South Africa, the Natal Shark Board has set up nets to protect swimmers from white sharks that come in and and get a little bit too close to shore. And so, unfortunately, every once in a while, uh, other animals in an unintended way get caught in those nets. And so Nandi was rescued by the staff at the Ushaka Marine Aquarium, and she was nursed back to health over the course of about a year by some of their very very kind staff, and she got the name Nandi. Um, It's the name of the mother of the king of the Zulu tribe, and so they really love this animal and wanted to honor her in a special way. Unfortunately, they don't have quite the size facilities that we have here at the Georgia Aquarium to keep something like a manta ray, and once you've had an animal, you know, in your care for a long period of time, there's always a concern that they won't be able to take care of themselves Mm -hmm. in the wild, and so through um, a partnership, which is very common in zoos and aquariums, we were able to bring her here. And manta rays are really magnificent, beautiful creatures. And like you mentioned, you had the opportunity to lay underneath her as she swam over. Our facility allows over 2 million visitors a year to see an animal that they may never get to experience without um, us being here. And so, you know, Nandi was able to come into our care. She's she's grown. She has about a 12 and a half foot wingspan now. We're thrilled to have her. Um, it's a very it's a very naturalistic habitat for her to be in the same waters as whale sharks. That's something that we see in the Yucatan where we study our whale sharks there. And so we're really thrilled to have her as part of our collection and, and happy to have brought her here through our rescue programs. And I understand the, the person who uh, provided her primary care was very protective and, and uh, was actually brought uh, to uh, Atlanta uh, to the Georgia Aquarium so he could really kind of vet your facility and, and vet staff to make sure that Nandi would receive the uh, the type of care that he would want for her. Is that correct? Absolutely. You know, he came with our team and, you know, our team spent several weeks and made several trips to South Africa so that they could get to know us. Um, You know, of course, professionally in the aquarium industry, there are staff that have been all over the world working. But they really wanted to make sure that they would be happy with the new adoptive home of this particular animal who is so graceful and so they did make the transport trip, and they stayed for several days afterwards to make sure that she was eating and behaving the way that they would want her to. And so, you know, we're very 
proud to be partners with those guys, and we certainly keep them up to date on her progress and her health. And so I think it's really been a nice partnership for both institutions. Indeed. And, and Christy, we thank you so much for joining us today. To thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Christy Cobb. Hackey from the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us today. We look forward to connecting with you during the week on all of our social networks, including YouTube and Stitcher, our new mobile app. So sign up for those things from our website at worldfootprints.com. It's been a pleasure to share some travel time with you today. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. And until then, travel responsibly and leave positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.